Now we are recording audio. Okay, so I'm going to start with the introduction. Report. Welcome back to another episode of Multilingual Mamas. Today, we're going to focus a little bit less on language acquisition and a little bit more on all of the cultural and identity struggles that come with growing up multilingual in the United States. To do so, we're very excited to have with us today Dr. Emilia Tsen, a sociolinguist at the Evansonian and American University, who's going to talk to us a little bit about the research that she does on language and identity. Thank you so much for joining us, Emilia. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So can you briefly introduce yourself and what you do? Sure. Um, well, like you said, I'm a sociolinguist. So I look at language in its social and cultural context. And specifically, I look at language and identity in, my, in um, immigration, immigrant and diasporic contexts. Um, so a lot of my work has to do with Latinx language and identity here in the United States, um, particularly in Washington, DC, which is where I'm currently based at American University um, through various projects and, and the DC, Washington, DC Latinx language and identity project there. Um, and I also am doing some intersectional work, looking at intersectional Latinx identities, um, primarily through the lens of Asian Latinos. So like Peruvian um, Chinese, for, for example. Awesome. And can you introduce yourself and your personal experience with bilingualism? Oh, sure. Um, I mean, I'm a heritage speaker. I'm a multilingual person. Um, I grew up in an immigrant family. So my family is from China and they immigrated to the United States um, during the 50s. So they were sort of the generation that left the country before there was an official Mandarin policy. So at that time, the diaspora was um, a lot of dialects, primarily Cantonese. So that was my heritage language in the house. Uh, Mandarin as well, but um, you know, as, as often in these multilingual, multi-dialectal situations, you, people use the languages differently with different people. So at home, um, my parents would be speaking Cantonese and English. Me and my brother would tend to respond in English. Um, so that, you know, that's very common for multilingual kids, for heritage speakers. Um, and then Mandarin was around too and other dialects sort of depending on what family members were around. But um, the one that they spoke with each other would be Cantonese, you know, Mandarin would be for other people, et cetera. Um, and I grew up in the Southwest. So outside of the house, it was a bilingual environment too, um, a very bilingual sort of Spanish and English environment. So I guess you could say that as a kid, um, I was just sort of aware of these kinds of things that there were different languages out there and different people spoke them, um, you know, spoke them with different people or at home or um, in public, all those distinctions. And I was also, um, I guess, aware that people were treated differently based on what languages they were speaking or if they had an accent or not, those kinds of things. So in a sense, my interest in language and identity is very personal and it started young, but it wasn't until I discovered there was this field called sociolinguistics that I realized you could actually study that um, and study the language itself, you know, um, not looking, not, you know, looking at language as part of society, not just looking at language as sort of part of a literary study or, or part of culture, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's interesting how young kids can pick up on those social cues assigned to different languages. Oh, absolutely. You know, and it's very interesting how quickly they start sorting out who they should, you know, who they speak which language with or sort of figuring out the rules of what's appropriate or what's acceptable, those kinds of things. Yeah, for sure. And it seems like you work with um, multicultural and multilingual children and sometimes adults who grow up that way. Um, since our podcast, or the focus of the podcast is on parents, um, we were wondering, what do you think they want to know about these experiences? 
do you have the kids' perspective? What do parents want? <laughs> what should we do? What's to learn from your research and your experience? Let me think. A lot of what I've done has been interviews with with bilingual people and heritage speaker, kind of reflecting on their ch- on their childhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I, I should say starting out also that a, a child child's perspective might be different because they're a little bit less consciously aware and sort of able to articulate these things depending on how old they are. Um, and, you know, there's a, a big range of perspectives and experiences out there. I think part of what makes heritage speakers so interesting but hard to pin down is that it really is a very mixed bag. You know, you have a whole range of, of language backgrounds from people who are very, very proficient in two or three languages or more to people who have, you know, maybe receptive proficiency where they can understand a lot but not speak it so much um, to people who might have, you know, exposure as a child and, and strong cultural connections, but maybe they only know certain certain words or things that they would have heard around the house, that kind of stuff. Um, so you have a whole range of experiences in there and a whole range of kind of, um, I think, maybe things that they would want their parents to know based on that. Mm-hmm. But thing that comes across pretty clearly with these interviews and when I give talks and we have kind of the audience interaction at the end um, is that people, they do feel a deep sense of attachment to their families and their cultures and their identities, but those cultures and identities for them, that experience may not look exactly the same as their parents expect it to. Mm -hmm. Total sense because they're growing up in a different country. You know, they're not having exactly the same experience, but you know, parents and grandparents having grown up in their countries often kind of think it's just going to sort of somehow be the same, right? Logically, I don't think they think that because they know that they're they're somewhere else now, but they kind of expect it's going to be the same and the kids will have the same kind of, um, you know, language background, the same cultural knowledge, the same experience. Um, And it's not. So that's a place where there's often kind of um, some tension because people, it's not that they're trying to it's not that the kids want, are sort of rejecting their culture and wanting to get away from it, which is how it's often perceived. And to be fair, especially when they're kids and teenagers, sometimes they do push back because they want to fit in with the people around them, right? Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's not necessarily that they want to reject it and they don't want to be, you know, in touch with their roots. It's just that they don't know how to do that, right? Because it looks different for somebody who's not growing up in that cu- culture. And they often feel quite insecure about it too and come in for a lot of criticism. So you know, they have a hard time getting closer to it because when they try to, then elders who expect them to act and to be able to sort of switch gears and act and speak exactly like a kid from their country say, you know, what's wrong with you? You're so Americanized. You don't speak this language right. Or, you know, you don't know how to act. Um, And so that can be kind of off-putting, you know, there's sort of an impossible position. Mm -hmm. So if I were going to sort of distill that into a message, I think that one of the messages I hear a lot is I'm trying, (laughs) you know, I'm doing best I can. I'm trying, but I don't know how, or cut me some slack, you know, um, you know, keep, keep giving me the support, but, you know, cut me some slack. I'm not, I'm not sort of, I'm not what you sort of like, what you might think I might be. Um, a good example, I guess a more articulate way to put that would be, um, um, would be like um, this idea of imposter syndrome almost. So this is what they were calling it on some in- interviews that I did on NPR. Yeah, I listened to that. Um, oh, I'm glad you did. Racial imposter syndrome, I think they were calling it. Yeah. yeah. And I love that interview because it, it, it came out of letters that people were writing them saying, so many people were writing them apparently saying, you know, hey, like, you know, my family background is, is Japanese or whatever, but I don't speak the language. So what does that make me? Can I really say that I'm... Japanese American if I don't speak the language, even if I'm sixth generation, you know, or, you know, the examples you were giving with your children, like, 
you know, can I really say that I, can I really claim this heritage if I don't speak the language? People start to wonder as they get older. Um, and that leads us into a whole bunch of other things, right? Because when people say speak the language, that's kind of a moving target too, right? It's, it sounds so common sense, like, oh, they, you know, you hear it all the time. Oh, my son speaks Spanish. Or, oh, he doesn't speak Spanish, you know? But what does that really mean? You know, and, and what it often means is people have in their mind an image of how the child should speak Spanish in order for it to count, which is exactly the way his cousin who's lived in Spain his whole life does. And that's just not sort of a reasonable expectation for a child who's not growing up in that country and also going to school in that country and all their friends speak the language and the TVs in that language and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's more reasonable to think, and I think sort of encouraging to think about, well, what can, what can the person actually do with the language? You know, can they understand it? Can they express themselves? Can they understand social situations? You know, what can they do with their language and cultural competence um, instead of focusing on the ways in which they might not be sort of measuring up to this ideal of the monolingual native speaker? I find this observation really interesting, but I'm starting to think a little bit uh, of trilingualism, right? Which is kind of like what I'm learning. And this is one of the motivations why I started the podcast as well, because there's a lot of research out there and a lot of understanding of bilingualism, not as much as multilingualism. And one thing that I've learned, and I think Lauren and I had an episode on um, a book that talked about multilingualism. Is that in a multilingual family, sometimes when you're raising multilingual children, one of the parents tends to be bilingual. Mm -hmm. If you have come across um, a case in which, because what you're saying sounds to me for the most part that you have first generation parents or mm -hmm. you have the second. So I'm curious to see if you have found that perhaps when one of the parents is second generation or perhaps bilingual, this tension that tends to be between the parents, what the parents want and what the kids are suffering might differ or not. Hmm, that's a good question. I'd have to think about that. Um, I'd have to sort of dig through my mental database and see if I can think of examples. I'd say the majority of the people that I've spoken to, it has been a little bit more clearly generationally divided. Um, it's been more clearly, you know, parents who came, um, you know, people who came first generation as immigrants and then had kids here, or people from that second generation kind of reflecting back on their experiences. I can't recall if I had anybody who had that type of thing where, you know, they had a parent from one country and then like a bilingual parent from this country. Um, it, it might be a thing. I don't know. Like I said, sure. We're not asking that from you, but I, it's <laughs> at this point, because what you're saying, uh, like, it's a bit like a generational divide. Relate more it tends to, to be. Experience. It tends to be. Um, my intuition would be, and that's a fascinating question to investigate. Um, you know, there's so, there's so little research still on mixed families and what there has what there is has tended to be on mixed families where the parents you know are not from the same background or don't speak the same language as opposed to sort of being in a different generational position um I don't know my inclination would be to say that it would depend very much on the family in that case and perhaps on the social context around them um because you know broadly speaking immigrant generation is such a predictor for language um for language maintenance or for, for language, I guess we could call it weakening, although that's a little bit of a deficit word, you know. Um, I like to think of it little as sort of your language profile changes, you know, shifting to be more bilingual and different things you do in that bilingual modality as opposed to focusing on, you know, quote unquote, losing a language. Um, so generation is such a predictor for that, but social context matters so much too, you know, if you're growing, if you're raising your family in a place where there's a large um, population of people, you know, a large speech community, right, then that tends to maintain it a lot. Um, 
if it's a place where there's a lot of migration, so there's sort of continuous contact with the other country, you know, people coming in, bringing the language, keeping it fresh, that tends to help, um, you know, that, that tends to help to, to, to um, encourage people to keep speaking the language, even in the younger generations, because um, it's creating real opportunities for them to communicate, right, and real motivations. Um, so my inclination would be to say it would depend a lot on the family and where they live. Um, and, you know, um, there are a lot of factors that could play a role. You know, one of them is that women tend to play a primary role in language transmission because women tend to be the primary caregivers for children. Um, so in that case, you know, if the mother is, if the mother speaks more in one language or the other, that might very well sort of be a guiding force in, in the family's language choice, right? Um, it could also depend on whether one or the other of them just has a really strong family language policy. You know, sometimes people have really strong feelings. Um, due to discrimination, um, sometimes families are really strong about not speaking their heritage language. They're afraid their kid will, will not speak English and that they'll be discriminated against, which is not true that they won't speak English, but they often are told that, right? Um, but sometimes people are really strong the other way. They're really solid in their identities and they're, you know, really making it a point to transmit them like, like you're doing actually, right? Mm -hmm. So that could make a difference. Um, might make a difference also, you know, what the community's like, um, what their extended families are like. Um, so I think it's, it would be, I think it would be hard to generalize in that situation because it's quite individual. So you're kind of getting into it already, but just within things that we can control, um, what kind of family practices have you seen that are particularly successful at kind okay. of fomenting those multicultural identities among second generation children? What makes them feel more connected to their parents' heritage, I guess, if anything? Well, from what I've heard, oftentimes people will mention their parents being very proud of their cultures and heritages as something that is um, that, that was important and as something that really kind of helped instill that help maintain that connection with them and helped keep that language going, even when maybe they were going through some bumps of like adolescence or such and kind of said, no, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I want to be like my friends, for example. Um, so playing the long game, I think, sort of having that pride and that, and that foundation and just keeping it going consistently. Um, but also being aware that, you know, you can't really force them at any one moment. And just like with other aspects of their life and testing boundaries and stuff, I think there's going to be times when they are more accepting and times when they push back. Um, and just kind of to keep it going, you know, but not to keep it going in those times and have faith that, you know, they'll work through, <laughs> you know, that you can just keep that as part of their lives, even if they're going through a phase where they're not very into it. Um, because if you stop, then, you know, that's kind of it. Being as family is usually the main conduit for this type of transmission, the family and the sort of the community around them. So if you give up, then that's kind of it, right? And when they're 20, they may come back like, oh man, I wish I knew about my culture. And you know, it's a lot harder to kind of get the language and the culture back then. Um, it can be a lot of pressure on kids and also on parents. I mean, I just said that and it sounds like a lot of pressure <laughs> to me to say that. Um, but, you know, and one of, I saw one of your questions is here is how can we all kind of relax? Yeah. <laughs> but I think that that's, um, probably something that's helpful is just bearing in mind that it's it's the long game um, and that if you have that pride and that consistency then that's that's a message that the kids will get um, consistently just like all the other messaging in their life you know I've 
spoken with people um, in various walks of life who said, yeah, you know, the reason that I speak this language so well is because somebody, you know, my mom or whoever was just very, very insistent on it. You know, the school said, you know, stop talking your language to your child. And they said, no, we're, you know, I'm from, I'm, I am who I am. I'm from this country. I'm going to keep it going. Um, another thing, let me think. Um, my mother-in-law, I think, said to the nieces when one of them was going through a little phase of like, speak English, um, very young, like maybe three or four years old, because even at that age, you know, they start to pick up on what people do or, and so forth. And I've heard that from other friends with kids too, even when they're quite young, they can start being like, no, no, speak English. Mm-hmm. And she would say, well, you know what, in, in a nice way, but she would just say, well, you know what, this is my language and this is what I feel, you know, this is what I like to speak. And she would just keep doing it, you know? Um, I don't think they've gotten to the level of big abstractions about like, this is our culture yet because the kids are little, but it's just sort of, you know, just keeping it going. I also, I think sometimes about how culture is a moving target too. Like Mm -hmm. my husband's version of Spanish culture is, you know, growing up in the nineties in Spain and that's never going to be the reality of Spain again. So some of it is, I don't want to learn that culture because I want to be, you know, cool and American and also, you know, you're old. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) You're just an old funny parent, no matter what. Sure. And that's another thing too, in, in diaspora or with migration, you know, um, we tend to kind of have our moments in time, almost like snapshots, you know? Um, and it's like the country you left behind has still been changing since you were gone, you know? Right. It's changed. Even the language changes. When you go back, you know, people are using different slang, you know, the accent may have shifted. Um, things are constantly evolving. Um, it's not a sort of put it in a box kind of situation. And I think that that insight is something that we can use really powerfully when we're trying to, um, sort of embrace multilingualism and encourage it and and encourage it in the next generation is to embrace that strength, you know, that languages and cultures are always changing. And so it's okay if your kids don't sound exactly like their parents or their grandparents, even if they had, if your husband had never left Spain, even if you guys lived there, they still wouldn't sound exactly like him. Mm -hmm. Um, Go ahead. Sorry. I I was just going to say, in case people listening are interested in Lauren's and I's story, since they're probably following us, uh, Something happened to my kids recently, especially basically my son, who's the only one who's able to speak and verbalize. He's a, he's a four and a half years old right now. And we asked him recently, I'm like, how do you feel? And he's like, I feel French and I feel Spanish. <laughs> he's only been to France once when he was one and a half. So there's no way he can remember any of that. But we do use a lot of pictures and we talk mm-hmm. about or stay there. And he does feel very identified with the cultures when we come back. Like, mm-hmm. And getting into this whole process in which every time we go back, I'll just print a bunch of pictures and we'll do like a collage of that. Summer, we went there, whatever. Mm-hmm. Likes that. And I, I think that's a way for me, for me as a first generation to just like make peace with myself because you have to leave, you have to leave your family again. And I'm just like, oh, we had a good time. These are the good memories that we have. And we put them on a collage. Mm-hmm. It was just like, oh, this is kind of what I'm looking forward to next year when we go back this summer, right? So it's that kind of like, wonderful. That's wonderful. And it's so age appropriate too, because at that age, they love to, I mean, everybody likes albums, but at that age, they love to look through family albums and see everybody and remember where they were. And so you're building so many connections besides, you know, you're building, you're, you're building strong, real connections to the language and the culture in ways that are meaningful to him, you know, family networks, experiences, all that stuff. 
But on the other hand, I know that this is also kind of like making my son insecure about his English right now. He's rejecting mm. a few things. It's like, oh, I don't feel as comfortable speaking English these days, which for me, as someone who's informed, bilingualism and stuff like that, I'm, just, I'm not concerned, right? I'm like, well, mm-hmm. you're staying here. This is going to come to you. You'll go to school yeah. better, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting how just like at such a young age, all these things are playing into it and kids are maybe less consciously aware of what's going on in the dynamics and how all of those things play into their bilingualism or multilingualism. Mm-hmm. So I, I thank you for mentioning all of this because no matter how young your kids are, they're, they're going through this. They really are. Yeah. And they pick mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff from the environment, you know, um, they can tell, you know, they can tell if their parents are being treated badly, you know, for certain, for certain ways or which language is prestigious or not, or if they're, if things are supportive or that kind of stuff. So they really do pick up on it. I love that you mentioned connections too, because um, to your earlier question, Lauren, about what seems to be very helpful too for keeping bilingualism mm-hmm. going, um, I think that those kind of, building that kind of connection is really important. You know, the more meaningful opportunities for communication a child has and that they see, um, you know, not just mom and dad, <laughs> the more that can kind of, you know, the more that expands their world and lets them see that these languages are really part of it. So, you know, when you're in contact with your families, when you're going to visit, you know, they can see there's a whole world there where people are, are speaking this language and they want to be part of it, you know? Um, and I feel like that's one of the blessings that we have today with technology that we maybe didn't have a few generations ago is it's a lot easier to keep in touch in real time with families and with friends overseas, you know, like, and kids are really kind of frighteningly good at stuff like FaceTime and virtual communication. You know, they, they really just sort of pick it up very quickly. Um, and it's nice, you know, they can be having real conversations with grandma about their days or, or things like that. And those connections kind of keep, they just give it a place in their life, not just besides just practicing, they give them a reason to keep mm-hmm. it. Um, one thing I hear a lot from people in the later generations who um, have, who are bilingual or have not sort of had the opportunity to, to, to become fully fluent in their heritage language or whatever, is that um, that's part of what concerns them the most is losing that family connection, that family continuity. And you hear it a lot, um, this sense that if you can't speak with your grandparents, you know, you're really missing out on something or you don't know your parents as well as you could, you could really, um, you know, if you could really connect on that level. Um, I guess we're going to continue with this negative note. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Um, we're just interested in the other. Uh, so you've given us some great uh, advice on how to strengthen those uh, connections to the cultures and the language itself. So we're just wondering now, what if we have the opposite scenario, right? What if we have parents whose kids are just like, I'm done with this language, mm. done with this culture, I cannot continue. What would be your advice uh, or how can parents reconnect if they wanted to, or what would be the right time to do so? What is your advice when that situation happens? Ooh, that's a hard one. You mean if the ch- a situation where um, a child just doesn't want to speak the language, they're not interested, they don't want to have anything to do with the culture, they're kind of being like, no, um, you know, I'm American or whatever, that kind of thing? Yes. Um, oof, that's a tough one, but I would say just um, keep being yourselves. You know, I mean, your child may not want to fully identify with your culture at a certain point, but that doesn't mean that you have to stop being who you are or being proud of your culture or doing your cultural habits. Um, And again, I think, you know, you cannot force anybody to do anything. You know, you literally cannot force someone to speak a language at any age. Um, And if you 
if you force them when they don't want to, or if, if you, that's a bad way of phrasing it. If, if it's a negative experience, if they have negative experiences around the language and that's gonna make them sort of less likely to want to do it, right? Or to want, make them more likely to want to avoid it, right? Um, whether that experience is, you know, sort of feeling like they're being bullied into speaking it or being over-criticized um, for errors or whatever. Um, but you can, you know, you can still, you can still have the language and culture be part of your life. You know, you can, you can keep speaking the language with them um, and just, you know, just, just have that carry on um, and hope that they, as they grow older, for example, and get out of adolescence, um, I'm not trying to be stereotypical, but there, that's when this happens a lot, you know, when kids get very aware of kind of peer pressure, um, you know, hope that they'll come to relax and just sort of see the benefits of it too. Um, so just to clarify, so what you're saying, if I want to talk to my kids in, in Spanish, I can continue doing so, but I should respect, <laughs> want to maybe address back, address me back in, in English, right? That's kind of the dynamics that would be respectful. So. I think so. I mean, I think you can encourage them to respond in, in Spanish. Let's uh -huh. say. I think you can encourage them to respond in Spanish. Um, and typically people do, you know, um, a lot of times it seems to be zoned. So people will say like, en esta casa hablamos español, you know, and so the kids are kind of used to doing that, using Spanish with certain people or in certain contexts. Mm -hmm. And if they're used to it like that, there's not too much pushback. Um, especially if they have people in their lives like grandparents who are Spanish dominant or might not speak English, right? Then, you know, um, it's not really a choice. If you, you know, you need to talk to grandma in the language that she can understand. Um, so I think you can encourage them, but if they go through a period where, you know, they just don't want to, you know, you cannot have a battle with them over it every single time, you know, um, I would say just, you know, keep encouraging them and keep trying and hopefully they'll outgrow it. You know, and that's also maybe a place where putting in some more of those connections can be helpful, you know, um, because, you know, they're growing up in the United States, which is not a very bilingual friendly environment in many ways. It's not a very um, multicultural friendly environment still in many ways. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of messaging that they receive sort of directly or subconsciously about being different and how that's not Good. I mean, nobody really wants to be different from their friends when they're little, that's universal, but there's also a lot of messages they receive about who belongs, about, you know, speak English because you're in the United States, that kind of stuff. And I think that's an area where um, having your family as examples, but also having like your, you know, family, friends, relatives, cousins, that kind of stuff um, can really help to offset it. If you're in a situation where you're able to do visits home too, so that they can sort of have that live connection and see that there's a bigger world out there, that's helpful. But even if that's not a possibility, you know, with with um, the the different communication that we have these days, it's possible to kind of keep those connections alive more. Mm -hmm. Kind of create more mm -hmm. need for the heritage language. Yeah, exactly. Create more opportunity, more connections, and more opportunities for them to have sort of a, a genuine motivation to communicate. You know, a, you know, if a kid wants to play with their cousins, that's a real powerful motivation to communicate. Um, much more so than sort of sitting and reading a book with their parents. Like that's a motivation too, but it's not as strong a motivation as getting out there and playing with your cousin. Right. Cool. Um, okay, so yeah, we've touched on this a little bit too, um, but we know that heritage speakers often feel a lot of anxiety when speaking their non-dominant language or their heritage language. Um, how can we make them feel more comfortable speak when they're 
reading and writing or even just speaking a non-dominant language and make them not feel so insecure about the type of Spanish they're speaking, for example? I think that this is an area where, I think this is an area where it's really helpful to bear in mind that a heritage speaker is different from a child growing up in, you know, in, in um, an immersion environment. Mm -hmm. So they're going to need more encouragement um, for lack, and it's gonna take longer um, to sort of put it simply. I feel like because language is so strongly connected with culture and identity, um, oftentimes parents without meaning to will put a lot of pressure on their kids because you know they really want them to learn the language. It's coming from a good place. They want them to learn it. They're willing to put a lot of energy into that. Um, but what's their model for children learning that language? Well, their model is themselves, right? And their experiences as a child when they were living in that country, immersed in this language 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And even then, right, it still takes years for a child to start producing the language. And when they start speaking, they make cute little mistakes and, you know, they just kind of outgrow them. They make the cute little mistakes with, you know, irregular verbs for a while and people correct them, but they don't correct them in a mean way because they know that everybody does it at that age. It's not, you know, it's not like it's a college student where you're going to mark it in red and they're going to go, oh, I'll go study that and fix it, right? They just kind of, they do it for a while and then they acquire the pattern and, and they move on, right? I mean, kid, kids are still acquiring pronunciation through, you know, third grade to that point, you know, when you have people, the, the was and the was, that kind of stuff. So it takes a long time. Um, I think it, that we forget that. And so when we're trying, when, you know, the heritage speaker is learning the language, we sort of assume that it's going to be the same experience for them and that we can give them the same kind of encouragement and the same kind of, um, corrections that we would give to a child in that environment, but they're really not having the same experience at all. Mm -hmm. You know, they're typically having at most a 50-50 experience. Um, and so they're not, you know, they're not going to have the same learning experience or the same language profile as sort of the model that we're working on for support and for correction. And so I think that if we can keep that in mind and realize that they're probably going to need more support and more encouragement it's going to take them longer and they're not going to sound exactly like somebody um, at their age would in the home country, um, then that can give us something to go with. You know, it's going to take longer. They're not going to sound exactly the same. Um, they may never sound exactly the same and that's okay. You know, there's a lot of evidence that like, heritage Spanish in the United States just has some, some differences from native Spanish in other countries. Some of it is probably some English influence and it just, it's just there, you know? Um, another area I think is important is for feedback because um, heritage speakers are really sensitive to that. I think children in general, people in general are sensitive to criticism, but when they're already sort of trying so hard, but aware that they're not quite um, sort of considered quite up to snuff, mm -hmm. criticism can hit really, um, can be really impactful because if you're already feeling a bit insecure or not fully capable at something, when you get a lot of criticism, then, you know, you tend to just want to stop. And that's quite dangerous, right? Because it's already usually easier for them to use English by that point. You know, they're already getting English at school, from TV, from their friends, maybe from their cousins and their siblings. It's definitely the easier thing to do. Um, and so they really do need a lot of support and encouragement just to keep speaking and keep reading and writing, even if they're not doing it perfectly, rather than somebody kind of nitpicking at them um, about the things they're doing wrong. And- Mm -hmm. Anything that you would correct 
a bilingual child on? Sure. I don't mean like, I don't mean that you should never say anything. I I just mean that, um, I feel like maybe, I feel like maybe the way that one would correct a child in the native, in the, in the country, in the um, immersion environment where they're getting the language all the time and they're kind of getting a lot of support in it. It's not that big a deal if you correct them because it's just, you know, they're overwhelmingly getting supported in that language. But if they don't have that full support um, and when they do try to use the language, they're immediately getting told like, that's not how you say it. Your accent is wrong, something like that. Um, it's more off-putting um, because they're in a more delicate language situation. So I don't mean like never give any feedback. I just mean that I think that we need to be kind of um, sensitive about how we do it and maybe aware that, again, it's a long game. You know, the main thing is you want them to keep speaking it. <laughs> Even if they're making weird mistakes, you want them to keep speaking it and, you know, and then you can help them fine tune those things as they go along. And it might take a while, you know, they might, you know, it might not be until they get a chance to go home for the summer, you know, and, and be in that immersion environment, or they might, you know, decide to take it in school later on and then fine tune some of their grammar or something like that. But the main point is, you know, you don't want them to get those negative associations to where they start to be afraid to talk or just have that aversion to talk or say like, mm, you know, I'm not good at it anyway. So whatever, you know, I'm in the United States, I'm just going to be American. Yeah. Because there's already so much pressure to do that. Be gentle. Yeah, exactly. And I'm using American in kind of a loose term here, but um, because obviously like we're a very diverse country, but that is kind of the perception still. And that is the, the strong messaging that kids are picking up is that being American means being a certain way and, you know, speaking only English and that kind of thing. So. So I think a good question to ask at this point, uh, and you've mentioned that you have a, a brother, is that right? Mm -hmm. So we're curious about other factors such as birth order or perhaps socioeconomic status or religion, other factors that might impact uh, mm -hmm. basically multilingualism, bilingualism, multiculturalism. What have you found, if anything? Oh, there's so many things. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many things. Um, well, think about it from like a parent standpoint, right? Things that okay. we should Okay. Well, birth order is definitely a big one. Um, that's one that's been pretty well established. Um, but more broadly, most of this has to come down to social context and things like um, language support, opportunities to use the language, that kind of stuff. Um, so when birth say, order, okay. go ahead, sorry. I was going to ask you to elaborate on birth order. Yeah. yeah. So birth order, I would say, is part of that. So, you know, it, it's definitely a factor, but it's because of those surrounding, um, that surrounding context that it's a factor. It's not, there's nothing sort of innately biological about being born first or second and that's gonna affect your language. Um, but typically the first child will speak the home language um, more than the rest of the siblings because when they're born, you know, they're the only kid. So their parents and, and their grandparents, their primary caretakers are going to be speaking whatever their primary language is with this child and that's gonna be their main input. Um, and in those situations, a lot of times the child doesn't learn the second language until they start socializing outside of the home, basically, right? Through daycare, through preschool, through school, that kind of stuff. Um, it's a little different if the parents are bilingual, um, like you've mentioned. So, um, you know, Sada, in your situation, you're doing one parent, one language. So they're doing, you know, you're doing the same thing I just described, but you're doing it with two separate languages. Um, you know, if the family is second generation and the parents are bilingual, then the child might be getting English and Spanish at home. Um, so it's a little, you know, so they might be learning them at the same time. Um, but typically the first child is going to have stronger heritage language because they have more exposure and no one else to talk to. <laughs> and, you know, by the time the second or third child comes along, 
they have an older sibling, they want to hang out with them, they play with them, they follow around, they copy them. Um, but because of that older sibling, the world's also a little bigger. You know, that older sibling is, is going to school, they're watching cartoons in English. I know I keep saying cartoons, but they do. Like, I mean, things like Paw Patrol and all that kind of stuff. I mean, cartoons are a big part of a little Very, team. very popular over here. You know, Vampirina, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, so the younger child is going to be getting that as well as whatever the parents and the grandparents are speaking. Plus, by that point, the grandparents, the parents may have started using more English with the older child, depending, you know, on, on what they decide to do or just what's easiest for them as the child gets older and becomes more bilingual, right? And so you can see then with the third child, by that time comes along, like probably the first and the second child are speaking to each other in English because they're used to doing that with their friends on the playground, you know, et cetera. And so it just kind of goes like that. Um, so birth order, you know, it, it, it's a factor but it's more because of the other stuff that goes around it than just, you know, simply because of who you are. And personality can have something to do with it. I mean, there's cases when families where a younger child just gets really into the language and, you know, gets really into the culture and just goes sort of really gung-ho about it. And, you know, an older child might decide they don't want to anymore or something like that. Um, other than that, it's really hard to generalize. It's very kind of context specific. Um, I mean, you know, there have been some studies that show that sometimes girls use the heritage language more, but that tends to be in communities where they're kind of expected to stay more at home and do more traditional kinds of things. But, you know, then there's also studies that show that girls adapt more quickly. So, you know, you can, on that level, it's hard to generalize because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of variation and it kind of seems to depend a lot on your social context. Um, you know, one of the questions that you had put on here is there's other, if there are any other variables like um, socioeconomic status or region. Um, and it just seems to be so contextual. Um, there doesn't seem to be that I know of um, a socioeconomic status correlate, at least for Spanish in the United States. Um, but I'm sure there's tons of case studies that are out there or could be done that are looking at, you know, different income levels and such. And I don't know if that would be the same in other countries or for other languages. Um, again, it seems to have to do a lot with opportunity, um, you know, and, and what your context is. You know, if your family is speaking the, the home language, then it's likely that the children will. Um, and so you might predict that as a family gets more assimilated, maybe they would do that less. But then bilingual education has really been picking up as a middle-class phenomenon in the United States, right? So that might balance it out. And plus when we're thinking about immigration, right? Like, um, you know, you have lots of families who are middle-class or upper middle-class um, who are also immigrants who come from that class in their home country. So they might be more likely to, you know, have the resources to, to go back or, 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 you know, maybe they're a transnational family that wants, you know, is expecting to go home. And so they want their kid to keep up with like the curriculum. I know that that's a thing with, you know, Argentinian curriculum with Mexican curriculum, um, you know, there's also a lot of class mobility across immigrant generations. So if you figure that a lot of first generation immigrants struggle more and then become more middle-class in the second generation, you know, if we saw a language correlate there it would probably be more of a generational thing. Mm -hmm. um, Region-wise, I think it, um, it, it has to do a lot with the community. Um, so areas that have, I mentioned this before, areas that have like a very sort of strong community presence with um, ref language refreshing that's going on with migration are going to be likely to have more of the language going on. Um, that all makes sense. So it's yeah. the, at the end of the day, it's the opportunity to use the language. Anything that increases that opportunity is 
you know, should corn yeah. language maintenance? Yeah, opportunity um, and uh, opportunity and attitudes, I would say, you know, if there's a place where the language, where the, where the community is strong, um, then that cultural, that cultural pride is a part of it. Although cultural pride can be a little bit of a dual edged with heritage speakers, um, just because, you know, being proud of your culture can really be an impetus to keep the language going. But if you're very proud of your culture, but you feel like you're not so good at the language, then that can feed the insecurity because you're back to saying, well, you know, can I really be, can I really call myself French? Can I really call myself Spanish if, you know, my language isn't up to speed? Um, so really, really funny parenthesis here. Uh, my son spent three months in Spain recently and he learned his last names uh, because uh, he was in Spanish school. And uh, sometimes he used the last names not to address them, but just, you know, I guess mm -hmm. or whatever. And we did some paperwork. So he was like hearing them constantly. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, those two last names that he has in Spain are different from the ones he has in the U.S. Oh, okay. So figure out, you know, like Spain is more rigid in terms uh -huh. of I put my my last name first because now I can in Spain. Yay! And um, Lucas has like ten United States. Yeah, Lauren. <laughs> but now in the U.S. is different, right? So here he is yelling to everybody what his last name is. But if he were to get lost here or whatever, they wouldn't work. So I thought it was so interesting that he's so proud of like I have two last names and here they are, and I'm just like they're not the same in the U.S. <laughs> about it like I don't even want to like we're not having this conversation but I thought it was so interesting because of the circumstances that come with multilingualism yeah, yeah leave it for now let them be proud of them <laughs> you know it's true though and it's a good point too that uh, you raise I think um sort of philosophically that multilingualism is not static you know it's not binary it's not these kind of neat categories there's a lot of soft areas and gray areas and slippage and things that don't quite translate or things that don't maybe don't have an exact concrete answer, you know, and that's part of that experience. And that's okay, too. You know, it's just it's I think we wrestle with it because it's by its nature, ambiguity is hard to describe, you know, but that's part of the experience. That's something that all multicultural, you know, multilingual kids have to get used to is just dealing with some of this, this um, ambiguity. So, and, you know, and, you know, the last name thing is just kind of a pain to be honest forever <laughs> it's just kind of a pain on passports for your whole life like yeah victoria's name is victoria gutierrez miller mm -hmm. and at daycare they they just call her victoria miller like they mm -hmm. just decided that gutierrez is not part of her name huh and you're like that's actually the opposite of how it should yeah. be yeah <laughs> that is so interesting lauren i have the opposite experience i don't know uh, Lucas is a second English last name because I put for mine to be the first and they dropped the English one. Huh. <laughs> on it. Oh, wow. It'll be interesting to hear what your kids think about that as they get older and more conscious and more conscious of these things. Yeah. yeah. We'll keep track of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll be right back. <laughs> um, so we wanted to also just talk a little bit about the specific context of the U.S. Mm -hmm. What do you think it, in the greater American society is the biggest misconception surrounding uh, multilingualism and multilingual individuals? Oh, <laughs> there's quite a few. <laughs> um, 
I think as a country, we just don't understand it very well, which is ironic being as we are and always have been a very multilingual country, but we're not very accepting of it as a country. Um, and I, I think that contributes to us not knowing very much about it. I mean, and in general, I mean, I have to give my linguistics plug here. I think in general, people um, are interested in language and could stand to learn more about it. It's something that's such an important part of our lives, but we kind of take it for granted, you know, like mm -hmm. just think of language. I like to think of it as um, it's like the air, you know, it's all around us and we breathe it, but we kind of take it for granted because it's just something that's always there. Right. Or like water for a fish, you live in it, but you don't really think about it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so there's a lot of stuff that people don't know about language or that they know that might not be accurate. Um, a lot of sort of common sense ideas that are not really true. And I think that's extra true for multilingualism. Um, so one of the biggest misconceptions I, I think is out there about multilingualism. Actually, I'm gonna say two, they're related. One of them is more kind of um, language and one of them is a little bit more um, ideological, but they play into each other. One big misconception is that you have to speak only English to be a real American. And that's a really strong current sort of cultural belief throughout our history. Again, even though we've been a multilingual country since our foundation, but this idea that there's sort of, and we don't have an official language, but there's this idea kind of that being American means speaking English and speaking English means only speaking English. Um, and those things are not true, right? You can absolutely be an American and speak multiple languages. In fact, it's something that, you know, hopefully we're trying to encourage more and more in our schools for all kinds of purposes, inclusivity, but also things like, you know, economic capacity and defense, all kinds of things that we need as a country. Um, but we still have this idea that, you know, you have to speak English to be an American and that to speak English, you can't speak anything else. So that's where I get into the second misconception is this idea that languages are somehow a zero sum game. Mm -hmm can't fit more than one of them in your head at a time. And so if you speak a, another language, it sort of has to cancel out English. And it's not true. I mean, this is not how language works. And it's not how anything else works either, right? So it's kind of funny that we apply that to language. Because if you play the violin and then you decide you want to take up the flute, nobody is going to say to you, oh, but you know, you're, you can't take up the flute. You already know the violin. You're going to be kind of like, half good at both of them, right? But that's what people often assume about bilinguals is that they can't possibly be good at both their languages because you know there's not room in there or something, which is just not true. Um, and I think that has to do with just not understanding multilingualism, um, not under having sort of taking this idea of just everybody, just each person speaking one language as the norm. Um, that monolingual bias, I think, is, is something that underlies that. And then this, this language and identity connection, again, this idea that a country should have just one language and that if you speak anything else, you're somehow not patriotic, which, again, is not true. It's I mean, interesting because you see that even more with children. Uh -huh. like the fact that I learned Spanish as an adult is like, wow, that's amazing. You know, it's great that you could study abroad and learn Spanish, but then when a five-year-old shows up to kindergarten speaking Spanish, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of this. That's an excellent. Scared of bilingual children or, yeah. you know, simultaneous bilingualism, but not second language. But mm -hmm. that makes sense. That's a great point too. And unfortunately a really sad one, but um, yeah, how we feel about bilingualism has a lot to do with who's bilingual. 
Right. Um, so, you know, we have all these people who are multilingual, all these children who are multilingual or who have the potential to be multilingual, but what do we say when they show up to school? We say, instead of saying, you know, oh, you speak this language, that's wonderful. How, let, let's get you up to speed in English and also support your other language so that you're fully bilingual, biliterate, um, and can do wonderful things with that. We say, oh, your English is kind of deficient. You know, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to just focus on that no matter what. Um, and so we really drain that resource. You know, we take it, we, we take it away from people, that part of their culture through neglect. Um, and then of course, ironically, you know, we want to try and put it back in through foreign language education when they're older, but you know, that's really not an ideal way to do it is to stop somebody from learning language when they're young and then try to put it back in with 45 minutes, a couple times a week when they get older. Um, and it has to do so much with who the people are, right? If when it's immigrants and their children, then people look at it as, as a deficiency, you know? It's something that's that's alien, that's suspicious, that's un-American, or, or at the very least, a sort of an impediment to real English and kind of real participation in the United States. But if your, um, if your Americanness is not questioned, right? Um, or you're in a social position to where bilingualism is seen as like an enrichment um, or an Your name is Warren Miller. Then, you know, then it's like, yeah, great, good for you. You must have worked really hard, you know, you're so accomplished. Um, and, and the really ironic part is you can have a heritage speaker and a second language student who are both speaking, um, you know, who are speaking comparable levels of the language and the heritage speaker is gonna be criticized first because people will assume they don't speak English because they're bilingual and second, because they'll say their bilingualism isn't good enough because they don't sound like a native speaker in their heritage language. Well, the second language speaker is getting all kinds of, you know, for getting better and better through studying, you know, it's, it's, it's unfair. It really is, but it says a lot more about our preconceptions as a country or our cultural stereotypes and preconceptions in that regard than it does about the actual language. A really good example of this actually was um, Princess Charlotte in England. Um, this was a while ago now, but there was a I saw this headline. This tweet, the, the headline about how yeah. she's bilingual because she's learning Chinese. And somebody on Twitter just responded, um, yeah, so are most immigrant kids, but I guess it, but I guess bilingualism isn't as impressive if you're poor. Yep. And I thought, Ooh, that's yeah, that's cutting, but you know. True. It's in reality though. True. Yeah, it's true. So we had one last question for you, but I think you were kind of addressed it. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit and reflect a little bit on yourself. Okay. And you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to, right? But since you are, you were a child who were raised bilingual mm -hmm. and old, and you're basically ultimately studying something that happened to you and understanding it and trying to spread the message, um, Tell us about that. Well, how's, how's that process been to you? And what brought you to studying what you're studying? And, you know, tell us about that. Because I think for parents, this is like the ultimate, yeah. I don't want to say dream, but like, it would be such a great experience, you know, to see that happen to their children. You mean, how did I get it? It's a healthy relationship. I oh. <laughs> Maybe I'm exaggerating, but just like, had the, the urge to explore this topic further potentially and, and learn about it and understand it and learn facts and spread them. <laughs> I, I did another NPR interview recently that I think is going to come out in June. And the interviewer said, you're like a language therapist. Exactly. <laughs> and I, thought, I really like that description. I'll take that. I really like that. Um, because, you know, 
as a heritage speaker myself and having, you know, having different ex experiences with different kinds of language acquisition, you know, heritage language, first language, second language study, all that stuff, um, plus being from an immigrant family and observing a bilingual environment, you know, several of them, um, you know, there's a lot going on in there. <laughs> um, and if I can kind of take some insights from that and combine them with the scientific aspect of understanding how language learning works and, and kind of the social context of language and how this ties in with people's feelings and identities and social experiences, um, then that's something that I, that's something that I like to do and I think is important um, because it touches people. You know, language is, is important to everyone, no matter how languages, how many languages they speak, even if they only speak one, because that's how we do our lives. You know, that's how we connect with people. That's how we, that's how we experience the world in a very important way. Um, but there's so much of it, of our experiences with it, that we are not taught how to understand, or we're maybe taught things about it that may or may not come from good intentions, but that are not accurate and make us feel like there's something wrong with us. Um, so if I can use my experiences um, in teaching and in research and in public speaking to kind of spread the message and help people understand language as part of their lives a little bit better, um, then I think I'm doing good work. And it would have meant a lot to me to have these kinds of conversations when I was younger, you know, um, just, it, it would have been great really, you know? Um, and I think that my, my family would have appreciated it too. And that's something that I see, um, you know, when we do these kinds of conversations is that people are interested, you know, it resonates, they see themselves in it and their families and their children and their, their, um, grandparents and, and all those kinds of things. They see there's experiences in it. And so um, it's a great way to connect with people. And I think um, just put us a little bit more in touch with that aspect of ourselves um, and help support people to feel positive about, the, that, about their language and their identities instead of kind of thinking about, you know, the ways in which they might feel less than or have been made to feel like they're not adequate um, or that they don't quite fit in appropriately because of who they are. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely uh, keep an eye out for that NPR interview. Yeah, thank you. Yes, for sure. And thank you so much because for parents, I know we're we keep focusing on the children, but for parents as well, like mm -hmm. learning, we I'm still learning. learning. Yeah. yeah, I feel very privileged to work in this area. You know, to be able to continually keep learning about these things. Um, and you had asked, you know, how did I come to it? I really just fell into it through some sociolinguistics graduate work. And what I remember when I first when I took that class, the world just opened up and I thought, my gosh, you know, it's not just me. I'm not alone. You know, <laughs> it's not just me or being an oddball or something like that. Lots and lots and lots of people go through this and there's actually a way that you can study it and see what's going on. Yeah, I, that's always been my experience at conferences. Too. Whenever you present to like a general public, you always, people at the end always come up and say, oh, I, you know, I thought it was just me. I, the, you're describing exactly my experience, so. Yeah, exactly. They're like, I thought it was just me, but it's not. Or, oh, you know, that's exactly what it was like with my grandparents. Or, oh, you know, my father um, doesn't speak fill in the blank language because his, you know, his, my grandparents were discriminated against and they wanted them to be all American, you know, that kind of stuff. You hear that a lot. Um, and from people of all different backgrounds. Uh, is there anything else that we didn't ask that you wanted to talk about? Mm, I don't think so. It's been a great conversation. Awesome. Um, 
Well, then I guess <laughs> we're going to leave it there for today. And uh, Amelia, thank you so much again for your time. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. We hope you'll be back soon for another episode of Multilingual Mamas. Don't forget, you can submit questions on our website, our Facebook, uh, or our Instagram. And that's it for today. Hasta luego. Adios.